are live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 15 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show in which we go back through the ages and all of human history and bring you cock-ups and screw-ups and mess-ups, the likes of which you will never see again, and hopefully you will learn lessons from and never repeat those mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. We like mess messing up like I just did there. Great start. Uh, <laughs> joining me as ever is my amazing co-host, Derek. Derek, are you okay? I'm good. It's awesome here. Excellent. I don't know if I like being in the middle. Well, I feel, I feel like the, the you the get the most meat. heat. Yeah. <laughs> and joining us for a very special show. I just want to thank her for being here. Laurel from um, Hightailing Through History. Thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure having you here. We've been connected like on social media for so long. We love your show so much. Aww. So thank you for joining us. And your reels. So yeah. entertaining. Oh, oh my God, your social media presence is amazing. Thank <laughs> you. you. Wow. Out so much work. This is wonderful. Thank you. Honestly, <laughs> thank you so much. This has been, well, one, I'm thrilled to be here. And yeah. two, I'm a big fan of your show as well, too. Thank and you. when you guys asked me to be here, I'm like, yeah, I, I will. <laughs> I will be here in what looks a little bit like a bunker. <laughs> we should explain to the audience watching. Yes, that's right. <laughs> we should we should explain to the audience who are watching this either live or after the fact that you are in rural Wisconsin. So there may be like a slight drop in in internet quality, but so far it's been really great. So good. I'm sitting yeah. as close as I can to where I I figure the router might be. So we're <laughs> smart, smart. <laughs> See how it uh, goes. So for the benefit of our audience who may not have heard about your show, can you tell us a little bit about what, what you guys do and what you cover and what you're, you're, you're into over there? Yeah. So the show, Hightailing Through History, I co-host with my sister, Katie. And every couple of weeks we get together. As we say, we get high. We get high in our own way. Um, I am, <laughs> I say I'm the resident stoner, uh, cannabis enthusiast, if you will. And my sister's a little more of the... Uh, boozer likes to have a glass of wine or a whiskey as we <laughs> as we go so it could be high in your own way you could be high on green tea or life it doesn't matter but um like your show we surprise each other with a weird wonderful different sort of history something that's maybe a little bit less known or nice. um you know just kind of the fun stuff to to chat about in our smoke circle as we like to call it our gatherings <laughs> That's really great. I uh, it's funny because when I when when we started this podcast and when I kind of got together with Derek like the general idea behind the podcast was just like we all, we both enjoyed history, right? We enjoyed it from a certain perspective where people take it so seriously, like every single topic in history and obviously some topics need to be taken seriously because you have to get the facts right, but at the same time there should be a level of enjoyment about learning the past and you know maybe kind of enriching your life with that and i i think you guys do such an excellent excellent job of that with your show i really really enjoy it and um again for anyone who who isn't following you where can they find your podcast and also what's your social media because we should say that you have some of the best social media content i've ever seen that's quite a compliment because i was somebody who really had a hard time with social media with posting but when you find something that you really love doing, in this yeah. case, making history fun, you enjoy the process a lot more. And so now I I really love doing the, the social media part, which is um, on Instagram, we're hightailing history. 
um, all together. And uh, that's really our main hub. Yeah. Is Instagram, you know, that's kind of where our, our most of our community is. It's how I know you guys and a bunch of other <laughs> wonderful um, history folks. And then we're also on TikTok as Hightailing History and um, Twitter, which I'm not great on Twitter, but we're there too. You can <laughs> you can find us on the Facebook. Uh, in terms of where the podcast is, it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, Amazon Music, Samsung, wherever you get great. your favorite podcasts. Excellent. That's that's really wonderful. And um, it's really great to share our platform as well because, um, yeah, we've got a lot of interesting people to talk about. I feel like we talk about kind of similar subject matters um mm -hmm. like p particularly people from history um myself and derek like to cover obviously idiots you guys like to cover really interesting varied topics so um as i understand it uh derek you and um laurel have kind of collabed a little bit on this is that would be would that be fair to say well i thought i thought of an idea uh after listening to the episode on the lavender scare i was like "Ooh, an idiot and then <laughs> I I just thought it would be fun to not do anything except for kind of hang out and BS and, and have a guest uh, presenter, like a guest presenter exchange program. Yes, that's great. We can go to their country and eat all the wine and cheese. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so, so Laurel, um, for we're about six minutes in we tend to try and keep it reasonably short at the start can you tell us who your idiot is this week and for those watching at home or afterwards we'll have a bunch of wonderful slides and images to go along with this episode thanks to derek so yeah laura please take it away all right so gentlemen listeners my idiot for you today is someone that most high school students learn about however brief or in-depth the study of this person was for them. He comes up on high school students' radar, and he came up on mine all these years later while I was researching a story for my podcast, as Derek mentioned, about the lavender scare. And, oh, man, he messed up. We have got an idiot. <laughs> oh, yeah. We got an idiot here. Here we go. So Joseph McCarthy, he was born on November 14th, 1908 near Appleton, Wisconsin, which is just apropos that I am here in the state of Wisconsin, my northern neighbor, uh, as I like to say. And he was born in a little town called Grand Chute. And the thing Sounds is, very rodeo. It mm. is. Yeah. <laughs> Grand Chute. Sounds like, like in you know, Montana or something, yeah. you know, kind of rodeo-esque like that. But uh, yeah, his, his early days bio, in comparison to some of the idiots that you guys cover on your show, sorry, we're kind of off picture here. Um, he doesn't really have a very interesting bio for early days. Right. So there's not really much going on. He's a he's a smart kid, academically speaking, at least. I can't really sp speak much to his common sense or you know, other activities. In his life. <laughs> he is really gullible. His mates are like, "Look, I pulled my finger off," and he's like, "Oh my god, what did you do?" Yeah, the uncle that would grab his nose, you know, that whole, you know, thing. Ah! He's like, oh, it's gone. No, but, um, but he, was a, he was academically a smart kid. Right. And he went on to Marquette University in Milwaukee. And while he was there, he was elected the president of his law school class, was well-liked enough. He earns his law degree in 1935. And he works his absolute ass off trying to be a circuit judge for Wisconsin's 10th Judicial Circuit. 
Okay. So he wants that judiciary appointment like out the gate. Right? Oh yeah. Right in there. He doesn't want to be anybody's assistant. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to be a lawyer. He's going right for judge, you know, do not pass go, do not collect oh. $200, that sort of thing. But it pays off for him. Oh. And he becomes the state's youngest circuit judge at the age of 30. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is really young for a judge. Some of these fuckers yeah. don't get on until they're in their 60s. That's crazy. Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, it's like I got a rocket under him. Yeah. He, he pestered enough people long enough that they're like, oh, just give him what he wants. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Politicking. <laughs> Based on how the rest of his life goes, maybe. Mm. So here he is, 30 years old doing the circuit judge thing. And like I said, his early life, there's not really much to be said about him because it's really generally uneventful. Years later, it's 1942. And McCarthy takes a leave of absence from his judgery and answers the call of his uncle Sam. Because okay. World War II is now fully in swing. And America has somewhat recently joined the fight as of the end of 1941. Mm -hmm. And McCarthy enters the war as a first lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And he's assigned, um, he's like a intelligence officer of, of sorts oh, with no. a dive bomber squadron. It's a very cool sounding job, but all the descriptions of it essentially just describe it as it's pretty safe. He's just relaying information to, right. you know, from the higher ups to the squadron. Sure. And he got to go out a few times and, you know, be a uh, observer and ride in the back, basically. You got plane ride? <laughs> <laughs> Got a ride along. That's 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 so cute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Take your idiot child friend to work day thing <laughs> with Joseph McCarthy. That's amazing. And there are some stories that they, I guess they're basically like, look, buddy, if you just want to sit in the back, it's like kind of yeah, like a ride along. If they gave him like a little, like plastic badge, oh, like here's your little, you know, here's your pair of. Toy handcuffs. <laughs> you can you can arrest all the you know all the things you want. It was kind of like that for him. He's right in the back, and I guess he was given given permission to just shoot off as much ammunition as he wanted, and so he basically was just kind of like shooting at coconut trees and. and <laughs> wow. <Yeah>, but, <laughs> but they ended up calling him Tail Gunner Joe, which wasn't. It, it doesn't sound like a mean nickname necessarily, but it was in mockery of, yeah. of him. And uh, so. Well, yeah. I always feel like I don't know when people are doing that to me either. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I may have had a, a nickname like that for a very long time in my youth, but it's fine. Those people are all assholes. So, yeah. But like, yeah, I, I think it's like Joseph McCarthy just like, yeah, go nuts, kid. Yeah, just, wa just waste all that ammunition. Don't worry that they're like. Russians like one gun between two of them on the the west at the eastern front. Just just like do what you want. Oh, look at him with his little medals. <laughs> yeah, there he is. Oh, you. Sorry, we have a uh, someone joining us in the chat. Toasterzoid, your great granddad was a tail gunner in World War Two. Amazing. Oh, wow. I bet he was more effective than Joe McCarthy. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, because see what that wasn't. Yeah, I should clarify that wasn't like his actual job. They basically were like, go right. on, get him back, kid. <laughs> Not kid, sir. You know. <laughs> Being an actual tail gunner is a completely you know different yeah. thing. But his situation was more of yeah, like a like a ride along, as I understand it, as it gets talked mm, about. I should say sure. I, I wasn't there, but um, but but yeah. So that was his military career. 
And while he's still on active duty, he starts running as a Republican nominee for the Senate. Oh, that was probably pretty helpful for him. Yeah. Especially, yeah. I mean, he's, he could very easily say, Hey, look, I'm a, I'm a veteran. Well, and that yeah, I'm a war mm. hero. I've, I've done these missions. I've, I've done these things. This is my, my position. And yeah, I, I'm sure it looked very good for him. Killed multiple um, coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> All those coconut trees. With the yeah, it's like, Don't vote for him. He killed my father. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and he uh but you know there's just also that reflection again of how hard he went to be a circuit judge and jumping right into that deep end there yeah actually you know what i should say that's going to be the theme for this story is jumping into the deep end right really now that i'm okay. saying it out loud i'm like yeah <laughs> that's mccarthy and <laughs> that feels so accurate it goes, right <laughs> <laughs> it goes right in he's trying to run for senate and he doesn't win the first time around, but 1946, now the war is over, and he wins in an upset against Senator Robert M. LaFollette, LaFollette okay. Jr. And then Joe becomes the youngest member of the Senate. And this so was out he, of Wisconsin still? Out of Wisconsin, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this young Wisconsin senator, he's quiet. He keeps his head down. He works on housing legislation sugar rationing. He's not making waves. Right. Status quo. <laughs> he tends towards conversation, uh, conservationism. No, not conservationism. Conservativism. Sorry. Sure. In his yeah. Very different things. Very different. <laughs> very, very different. <laughs> Spelled really close though. Damn yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> Which now I'm, I had to like double check. Like, did I actually write the wrong thing? No, I didn't. I just <laughs> no. said it wrong. Yeah. Conservation, conservatism. There we go. And yeah. his votes and his opinions, but he still is flying under the proverbial radar for four right. years. So he's kind of time. stealing a living to a certain extent. Like he's not making massive mm -hmm. waves, not really shooting for the stars, just doing his job, biding his time. If only he had stayed that way. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, you're reading this first part of it. You're like, oh, he's not much of an idiot. Mm. He sounds fine. Doesn't sound like too much of a big deal. However, yeah, yeah. everyone's waiting for that idiot moment. And <laughs> And so just for the moment, I'm just going to leave him here in his first term playing nice. We're going to pull the lens back and yeah. kind of look at a, the big picture here. Something that I like to do in my stories mm -hmm. is set the scene, get the climate of the time, mm -hmm. you know, the, the vibes, as if you sure. will. Back in September 1945, end of World War II, into early 1950, America's in its first five years out of World War II, which ends very strangely for those involved on the side of the allied forces. For some context and why I say that, the Soviet Union became an ally during the war. Um, it was one of those, the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of right, thing. Right, yeah, of course, yeah. And once that mutual enemy is taken care of, there's this scramble for dominance. Mm -hmm. And the picture I always get in my head whenever I, I think of this scenario is it's like, all the allied forces, including the Soviet Union, they're all patting each other on the back. You know, well done, boys. We did it. Good job. We really <laughs> show them, you know. <laughs> and then they turn and they look at beautiful, well, you know, 
I, I shouldn't say beautiful, but it's like a golden shining Berlin city. Mm. <laughs> this the seat of power here for yeah. Nazi Germany. And they all look at it and they're like, okay, here we are, a team. Let's link arms and walk into the city together. <laughs> this doesn't happen, of course. No. Um, they're they're walking towards the <laughs> walking towards the city and they look over and Stalin is power walking. <laughs> um what, to the to the point where it is practically running and yeah. <laughs> just as they're figuring out oh we have a problem here stalin's going to try and take it all for himself and mm -hmm. uh, you know the soviet union and so then there's this all-out scramble for berlin which we know gets divided in half east and west for decades yeah. to come so just a little context there and so for them that moment on it was a series of microaggressions, uh, meso, mm -hmm. <laughs> macro, maybe depending on, on, you know, what it was and how, you, what side of it you were on that mm. kicks off the cold war. Cool. Again, decades long, um, 45 yeah. years, essentially yeah. of, of yes. back and really? forth, tip -tap, Tense. micro wars, mm -hmm. proxy wars. Yeah. Yes. It, uh, brought us something good though. I don't remember what. I don't know. I think the space Be program. Yes. Beatle, yes. Go. Space program. Beatles song back in the USSR. That's pretty good. Yes. Um, that was a good one. Yakov Smirnov. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty good for a while. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That's, I but, yeah. For the, I'd, I'd imagine, because obviously all, all three of us will maybe, I, I don't want to speak for Laurel, but I know that myself and Derek, being Xennials, will, will be old enough to remember the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, when we were kids, more and, and like uh, we talked about this before, it's one of those moments where you know you're watching history, even though you're a kid. You're like, Yeah, everyone uh, is watching this. I remember my, I think, uncle, cousin, whatever you want to call it, I think, bought mail order a piece of the Berlin Wall mm. when it came out. They're selling that very, in Minnesota. Yeah, <laughs> there's a very famous part, a uh, picture of the Berlin Wall, like someone with a, a pickaxe putting it into the Berlin Wall. And graffitied on the wall is uh, Wolves Poly Forever, which is uh, Wolverhampton Polytechnic College, which uh, is the city I live in at the moment. And that is now Wolverhampton University. So that's a random thing, along with David Hasselhoff going, I'm going to free the world. Um, <laughs> but also, um, yeah, I, I think it's the reason I bring this up is a lot of people who listen to this podcast and the majority of our audience is slightly older, but some of our younger audience will not really know what it was like to live under the shadow of constant looming war, particularly like, in, I guess, before our time in the 60s, but also in the 80s, there's a lot of confrontation going on with Ronald Reagan and the various leaders of the Soviet Union at the time. There was a looming threat of nuclear war to the point where it pervaded popular culture. Mm -hmm. So we had that in our childhood growing up, like this maybe at war with the Soviets at any point in time. And for me, a Welsh person is like, my, my grandfather's a socialist. Like, why would we fight the communists? Like, this doesn't make sense to me. So they're scary because they're mm -hmm. scary and they want to take away our religion. And I'm like, I'm atheist. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I think for, yeah. for our, our younger audience, that context, like, shit was scary. The Cold War for 45 years was was pretty tense time in the world. Well, even in the 80s, you put out movies like Red Dawn, which yeah. is in a way cool amazing still kind of scary when you're thinking about it like oh my god i yeah. might have to fight as a kid and shit yeah <laughs> yeah and the soviets were always portrayed in all those movies mm. as the most 
hard ass, scary, tough yeah. people. Just like the Russian from Rocky. I was just yeah. about to say, yes, I know. <laughs> I, will, I will break you. Yeah, that kind I of will, thing, you know, and it's um, I will break you. If he dies, he dies, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's and so we, there's really a very, um, very set picture of what Americans yeah. are getting of what the Soviet Union is, of what Soviets are, of what communism is. It's yeah. this scary, cold, hard, it's a harsh land, you know, it's, yeah. they're atheist and freedom hating, oh, you know, and mm. um, <laughs> it, it, it creates, you know, it creates a lot of fear and the internet didn't exist, you know, so it wasn't like you can kind of compare, you know, stories and hear yeah. real things from people. Mm. Um, it was just what you were told you know, exactly. by your government or your media. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For news. That's exactly uh, right. Yeah. And and we well, pre-Cold War, we as in America, I should say, we already had this this fear in from 1917 when there was the Russian Revolution or the Bolshevik Re Revolution, when the Russian Tsar was overthrown. Um putting it as quickly as I can and, and the country became communist. And that was a really scary thing. And that became actually the first red scare really. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the idea that I should say the idea as it is just full stop, the idea of communism can spread quickly. You know, it's like, it's, it's thought, you know, I could say something that could influence Derek and Lev and then, you know, we're saying this out to your listeners and that could influence them. And, mm. and that was the thought it was like cancerous or, yeah. you know, like right. a, a mold has to be cut. The out domino of. effect essentially mm -hmm. is, is a phrase that was used a lot, particularly for governments around the world. Like, well, if one goes communist, then the next one will go and then the next one, and the next one's like, you're kind of ruling out free will here, but sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. I feel but, like um, if it takes off that, that well, there might be something to it. <laughs> yes, yes. And also, like, yeah, they. I think they saw communism as like we now see boy bands. Like, it really <laughs> was never going to be that successful. You're like, oh my god, Stalin! Ah, yeah. Russia. Well, luckily, yeah. I mean, it's weird though because <laughs> communism was almost taking over in. Germany at the same time and kind of led right, right. to the uprise of socialism and then socialists and communists hated each other. And I don't understand how that works. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. That's, that was always, that's always a question I have when I go through research of this time. It's like, why, why are you two fighting or why are you not, you know, these sort of things where it's like, yeah. you know, it doesn't really quite make sense, but you know, mm. and yeah. But yeah, I mean, you you stated exactly right. And, and that's actually what I have here is like, you know, that domino effect of border sharing countries falling to communism. And it it wasn't like that that thought is completely unfounded necessarily, because through the late 40s, the world has seen what's happening with those, you know, the Eastern Bloc countries being pulled in by the Soviet Union or you know, becoming yeah. the Soviet Union. And then we have communism spreading into China, 1949. And now we have the Korean Peninsula that the northern part of the Korean Peninsula was um, occupied by Soviet troops at the end of World War II, or, you know, 
yeah, towards the end and after the fall of World War II. And so there's communist influence there. And they're like, well, you know, we've got to stop this. And therefore, we mm. have the Korean War, which begins June 27th, 1950, continues for three years after that. And the fear for Americans as they're watching the spread of communism during the, this last half of the 40s was the thought that our country, our as in America, we are now going to be the target of the Soviet Union trying to subvert our American freedom-loving way of life, uh, capitalism. They're going to they're yeah. going to completely change everything that we've been built on and that we know. That's the fear, I should right. say. And yeah. adding to this general fear amongst most of the American public was the addition that communists they look just like you and me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't look at them and go, oh, I know that's a communist. Um, and that was scary because they could be living amongst us, working amongst us. They could be our teachers, you know, they could be teaching our, our kids things. Oh no. And yeah. Oh, if only there was somebody to point them out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how could that person be? <laughs> and, so, and so also along with this, um, you know, speaking now shifting over to our our American government in Congress, there was legislation moving through called the Munt, uh, Munt Bick Nixon bill. And it's, yes, it's that same tricky Dick yeah. Nixon and the McCarran act. And in the Munt Nixon bill, which passed overwhelmingly in the house, it was a law that required people to register that they were members of the communist party in the United States. That's right. And then the McCarran act takes it a step further and then allows for air quotes here, uh, emergency detainment of ah, communists. Yeah. Well, that's hey. not fucking scary. Freedom. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was, of course, the much more controversial part of, you know, that addition, but uh, people were still for it. Well, yeah. you know, people that were anti-communist were still very much for it. And really, because of how overwhelmingly it passed, the, both these things passed through the House, it's thought that this was the reflection of the overwhelming American public opinion is the thought that like, well, this is what everybody thinks. And we think this is and because we think it's that important. We are also representatives yeah. you know, of the nation. And therefore, you know, we all think this. You're shaping the right. narrative. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, marketing. It's yeah. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Sorry, I'm playing with graphics now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and yeah you're, you're not wrong with this and and it happens so here we go it's january 1950 a state department employee by the name of alger hiss is convicted as a well he's convicted under perjury charges but it's for him being a you know a thought to be a communist spy working inside the government right holy shit they've inf infiltrated right they're yeah. on the inside, man. They know they're in there. They've rooted <laughs> down deep. And so the story of Alger Hiss, it's it's a bit of a muddled story, but it can be potentially pretty tragic. Um, or, you know, kind of a sad one, I should say, depending on what one believes is true, I should say. The brief synopsis, Alger Hiss, who did work in the State Department, was named by Whitaker Chambers, who is a journalist, communist, he was a Soviet spy, and he said that his is also part of his espionage ring. Right. Huh. And his always denied it. Um, 
he went through two trials where the espionage charges were um, past the statute of limitations, but the perjury for the espionage was what he was being tried for and was ultimately convicted on in the, his right. second trial. Just very briefly, I didn't, because that, that was a whole rabbit hole in itself. And so I was like <laughs> pulling myself out. I was like, no, don't go down <laughs> too far because it, it got, it gets kind of messy because there you know, there is some evidence where people were saying, nope, this was his code name and this was this and this was that. And this is what he said mm. or did. And then later there's, you know, some actual Soviet spies or people working in Soviet intelligence that were like, we don't really have paperwork on this guy. Wow. And then they could very well be saying, you know, oh, we don't, but then like, you know, hiding the files yeah, or, or not, you know? And so, there just seems to be a lot of confusion around it, but he was convicted and had uh, prison time for, I think it was like three, three years, eight months. Okay. But it's quite a lot for perjury. Perjury. Really. Yeah. It feels like a yeah, long that's, time. That's like uh, when OJ got convicted for theft, but it was really murder. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he got like a life sentence or something. Like that. Oh, it was, it was long. It's like 15 years or something. Yeah. Like he was in for Sorry, a while. I wandered off. Uh, no, 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 that's it's it's a similar thing. No. Like I, I thought, perjury would have been like we we have a similar thing in this country called uh, perverting the course of justice, which is really it's, a, it's the British way of saying it. It's just ridiculous. Uh, but like the that most you can get for that, and uh, it's so stupid. The most you can get for that is like six months in prison, and the majority of the time, like ninety percent of cases, it'll be like a suspended sentence, so you won't go to prison really. So three years, eight months, a long time. Yeah, yeah. For, mm -hmm. absolutely for lying under oath. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of important, though, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that death penalty for jaywalking. Yeah, <laughs> that's just right. Yeah, and I think I, you know, this is just purely my speculation. Along with it, it's just the thought of like, well, we can't get him from espionage, but we can get him for perjury, and if we can really stick it to him and kind mm. of make somewhat of an example out of him, we'll do yeah. it. And yeah. it, you know, and that worked, I guess, because really that trial was huge. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, we've got somebody in the State Department that's a spy. This is insane. Yeah. It's, and, yeah. Shaky a little bit. You've right. I mean, and so because of its high profile nature, it's thought that encouraged the passing of the Nixon bill and the McCarran Act. And when they went back to the, the Senate the second time around, those things passed through because they're like, well, we need to know who these communists are and we need to be able to take legal action on them if we need to. Yeah, I, I just on a, on a quick side note as well, they're very focused on this this guy who was convicted of perjury in very much an Al Capone sort of way. It's like, well, we can't get him on racketeering, we'll get him on taxes, mm -hmm. sort of thing. But like, what I guess the American government didn't mention is that they had cherry picked the best of the Nazi scientific forces with mm -hmm. Operation Paperclip, <laughs> and you know, as as they say in an episode of Archer, you walk into NASA and say Zeke Hal, half of them will stand to attention. <laughs> like, I love that show. Former Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. America was very like, I, and a lot of the people that they brought into their ranks, and I think we've covered one recently, Derek, were like, like former mass murderers. So that was uh, the yeah. Alamin guy. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who started, um, 
the drug that killed and and physically damaged like hundreds of thousands of people for decades. You know, he, he was completely, he was fine. No, no trial for him. But yet, this one spy gets done for perjury for three and a half years, and all of a sudden, everyone needs to be vetted. It seems a bit disproportionate given what else is going on, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's just me venting. Please continue. No, I mean you're exactly right. So we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna be in 1950 now. Here we are. Um, can I swear? Not, I'm only gonna, yeah, gonna swear. swear all you like. Okay, thank you. I, I'll I'll keep <laughs> I'll keep it sort of clean. I'm, I'm a yeah. bit of a potty mouth, but um, you know, shit seems to be hitting the fan here. And so we're going to bring Joseph McCarthy back in again, now that we kind of understand the, the soup of that, everything is getting stirred into. And he's still in his first term as a junior Senator from Wisconsin. He's flying under the radar, but he's looking at hopefully getting reelected re soon. Communism and the Soviet union was the, you know, the other air quotes there that we could rally against. Mm -hmm. Right. It didn't matter if you were Republican or Democrat or, you know, whatever. For the most part, you know, generally the majority of the American public, this was something that people could rally behind and be like, you know what? It's us against them. It's capitalism against uh, communism. It, this, you know, it, it made a really good dividing line in the sand. Hmm. And, you know, I mean subversion of the american way of life you know it's a bipartisan thing you know so something everyone can get behind and so the next month february 1950 senator mccarthy he's in wheeling west virginia which why he's there i'm not entirely sure why he's not speaking in wisconsin but he's in west virginia booze <laughs> <laughs> booze not really good booze yeah. oh that's probably what it is um <laughs> he's he's speaking at a republican women's group Oh. And this is, yeah. And this is the moment that he decides, for whatever reason, he's going to have a piece of paper with him. And he's got this folded piece of paper. And he starts waving it around. He's like, I've got 205 names of known communists that are working and shaping policy in the State Department. And the quiet, <laughs> under the radar senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy, has suddenly, uh, I don't know, found some voice here um mm -hmm. and he is he's loud and he's uh commanding and um he's very good with how he well he's very good with his rhetoric he's very good with mm -hmm. how he's using his words to um create fear and surprise and shock and with this group of women they're like oh my gosh this man's telling us there are people in the state department that are actually shaping our laws and have yeah. influence in our government are you kidding me? People freaked out. Card-carrying communists in the State Department. Right, Ooh. yeah. Yeah. Changing everything. They're going to change our way of life. Yes. Yeah, even right. though they're card-carrying because we've made them register. <laughs> oh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. No, never mind that. Never mind that. That's fine. That. Yeah. And from that point on, McCarthy leads this crusade, if you will, against communism. And to his supporters, he looked like Mm. a true patriot oh yeah he sets himself up as the one man the white knight to stand up to communism which was poisoning the world mm. and it made everybody else because he's willing to stand up and be very loud about this it made everybody else around him in congress look soft look weak uh, uh on, on communism and just subversive activities and 
it really puts him out in front as like, he's our man that's going to really get to the bottom of this. He's not scared to say what's on his mind about these things. He will <laughs> tell it like it is. Hey, and a lot of assholes that sound the same way. <laughs> yeah. Basically yeah. describing every politician that's oh, been yeah. voted in recently. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> We've hit onto something here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's going to stand up. He's going to fight. Ooh, there we go. He's going to stand up and fight tooth and nail for freedom, keeping America, America, and great and capitalist. <laughs> and sorry, um, I, I digress there. But this period of time after February 1950, when he waived his supposed names, it begins what we know in the history books as the Red Scare. Although technically this is the sequel. We Red Scare 2, The Rise yeah. of McCarthyism. You know, this is <laughs> this is our, our movie sequel here for Red Dawn. Oh yeah. And <laughs> the second Red Scare is um four years of time. It it'd been gathering steam up to this point, but the real fever pitch with McCarthyism is this four years, 1950 to 1954. And so now we're getting to the idiot part. Um so I do want to point out, yes, we have had some cases of um, you know, spies and subversive activity in the government. Yeah. And we had, sorry to interrupt as well. We had that over in the UK. We had the Cambridge uh, spy ring, which was particularly famous in history. If you, if you guys haven't heard of that, I would highly recommend mm -hmm. you look up on that. But they were communist spies that came through the Cambridge educational system and made their way into, uh, I think, the Secret Service. So, goodness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. At that same period of time, you said? Mm, oh, yeah. Yeah. Around about this time. Yeah. Okay. Big deal. Yeah, and as with a lot of stories, this is the case with this one, too. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of cogs in the machine. We've got Hoover at the FBI stirring things up. We've got things coming out of the CIA that are stirring things up. We have a switch in presidencies three quarters of the way through this Red Scare, which, you know, some people then argue that it it could have it could have shut McCarthy down a little bit faster, um, but he was able to go unchecked a little longer than maybe mm. should or you know there's things that go back and forth with that of course and on top of that yeah it's not like they didn't find soviet spies we had alger hiss who was convicted for his you know perjury yeah. and then we had in 1953 julius and ethel rosenbaum convicted and executed yes. for sharing atomic secrets with the soviet union for making the atomic bomb mm -hmm. in canada around this time there's another conviction for espionage then you talk about Cambridge. So there are things going on. I do yeah. want to like make that clear that it's not completely unfounded. No. However, yeah. <laughs> however, he fabricates his part uh, to a degree. Mm -hmm. And so now idiot stuff. Okay, here we go. 205 <laughs> names on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Known freaking communists in the government. Then the number turns to 57. <laughs> then later it's 81. You know, who's counting? Who's counting this? Uh, whatever. Numbers change. <laughs> Deal with it. It's spreading. Yeah. And then receding and then spreading a little. Yeah. <laughs> We're just figuring this out as we go. Yeah. And McCarthy's having these congressional subcommittees to investigate these claims. And they are bipartisan. He is a Republican senator, but he's got Democrats on there with him as well, too. And and he is subpoenaing the hell out of everybody. Yeah, it's like everybody. candy at a parade. He is flinging them out here, there, and everywhere. 
Although unlike Candy at a Parade, nobody wants, really wants to go for no. it. Um, you don't get that mad rush <laughs> out into the street. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. that's the rolls. It's like, oh, I've been subpoenaed. And he goes through the State Department, the Defense Department, military intelligence, and mm -hmm. the Civil Service Commission, which is the agency that oversees all the civilian employees of the U.S. federal government. Wow. Then so Hollywood. Many people. It, yeah, it I was going to say, and major entertainers as well. Charlie mm -hmm. Chaplin, I think, was one of the victims. I mean, that was more yeah. Hoover than anything, but, but yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean, um, Arthur Miller is a really good example yes. of that as well, too. I, that was some actually someone I did a reel on um, when he was called in to testify. And with him, it was like, you know, their, their big thing was like, well, give us a name. You tell us all your other writer friends who are also communists, you give us a name, and, you know, we'll let this go. And he, yeah. they did that with him and they did that with so many other people. Then people were just like, here's some names. But but <laughs> but Arthur Miller was was essentially like, no, go fuck yourself. He didn't say yeah. that, of course, but that was kind of his, uh, in, a, in a very polite and nice way. He was basically like, no, I'm not giving you any names. No, I'm not a communist. Leave me alone. Hmm. And he writes The Crucible about the Red Scare, which is set during the Salem Witch Trial, which is yeah some symbolism for you. But, uh, you know, with that, with Hollywood, there's a lot of anti-communism propaganda just so they weren't targeted. Or, you know, just like, be like, hey, I'm putting out this film that talks about how scary it is to be married to a communist. So mm. don't look at <laughs> me. Yeah. And also some actors who were quite actively involved in somewhat rooting that out i know ronald reagan had like a a big part in like yeah. the whole he's a communist and they're a communist and you know yeah if we can thing. deflect away from ourselves and point yeah. out other people we're going to look like a really cool person and we're going to look yeah. like a hero and then we also don't have the the spotlight on us in that and if we point at the right ones you know then we get more roles because we can yeah. go against competitors if we wanted to yeah right that is, you know that would be one of those things where they're like just give us a name and you'd be like well gary mm. cooper's up against me for this role <laughs> yeah. you know like uh gary Cooper, get that guy in there drag him in um no so yeah it just it was everywhere really uh Tosoid, very very good point here these those old uh cheesy alien invasion movies were propaganda against immigrants and communists i know that the invasion yeah. of the body snatchers is a particularly big one around about this time the idea of oh but they look like us and yeah they're not us they're from mm -hmm. a different existence and stuff yeah that's there's definitely a lot of that going on there and yes it was a, a good way of uh deflecting as you said laurel uh attention away from them yeah so despite all of that all those testimonies all the name calling and honestly, I, I, I try to kind of remove my opinion about things sometimes just so um, I can kind of tell it as straightforward as it is. But I will say he was just doing just some plain old fashioned shitty me name calling. Yeah. You know, he was just he was just harassing and yelling and just just looking like a big old bully, really, you yeah. know, Um which it can be effective, I suppose, in the sense of like you looking looking more powerful to somebody, mm. I, I guess, um, you know, but but if you're not getting anything out of it, you know, if you're not. <laughs> you're not making any money. <laughs> you're, not, you're not. Yeah, you're not. There's no result. You know, that 
that becomes a problem. And so anyway, uh, mm. he never found a communist basically at, at no. the end of the day there with that. And not a single one. No. He called well, hundreds of people in, not a single one. So but, close. <laughs> but he would do that stuff. Like, I know you're a communist, so give us the name. And so yeah. when he would get these other names, you know, for people that maybe were willing to give them, give up names, whatever they might be, but uh, it, it did spur forth like, okay, well, I'm giving you a name. So now I have this next lead to follow. And, you know, it's like an MLM, mm -hmm. like a pyramid scheme, basically. Yeah. It's like one person starts and they give you the names of five other people. And then those five people, give you five other names. And yeah, it's like, I can't believe, because I didn't know the, the results. I just know the furore around it in history. I didn't know he didn't catch a single communist. What kind of, and this went on for years. Yes. Right? Uh -huh. Wow. Yep. See, and one benefit is that, uh, you know, we did, you guys were talking about, we did actually have spies, but like the people that were supposed to go find them and get them, found them yeah. and caught them and did stuff. And the one that was out there doing uh, the, pro the the marketing mm -hmm. didn't yes. find any. No, yeah. not a single one. Me. You know, especially nothing that was like, sub like substantial that you could even prosecute on. Yeah. Like if, let's say, you know, Joe Schmo over here. I just realized I said the name of my person I'm covering. So I must add a Schmo to that. And, <laughs> but let's say he is communist. Let's say he carries the card or whatever, and he's a very proud communist. And I talk to him or whatever, you know, they could say, well, Laurel, you talk to him. You must, you must uh, agree with him or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. You're like, yeah. I'm like, well, I talk to him, but I'm not giving him any money. I'm not joining his club no. or whatever. And so it would be stuff like that, you know, that they yeah. would try and go after and there was nothing. And so he's reelected in 1952 because he, his popularity is growing despite not mm. getting, not having anything to show for it. His popularity no. grows. He's reelected in 1952. He keeps right on going with his witch hunt and people were scared. And this is, this is why I think he's an idiot or a, a good candidate for your, your show He's pointing fingers. He's naming names. He's dragging people into court, accusing them without evidence, or again, at least anything that's substantial or has any sort of value. And he's ruining lives doing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Relationships, marriages, jobs. Mm. This is a time in America where being communist mm. means you're an enemy of the country. Yeah. And, in, and in communist sense, is you know? so ill-defined mm -hmm. as well. Like anyone who isn't like radically in favor of everything american immediately you're a communist if you're an artist you're probably a communist if mm -hmm. you're a writer you're probably a communist like you're doing away with vast ways of the cultural identity of a country just because you're like i'm terrified of these people you know it's <laughs> like it was it like you, like you point out it was literally everyone and the end kind of came it all fell apart like very very quickly towards the end as is, is that right Yes. Yeah. And, and so I, he's, he, uh, well, I'll tell you in just a second here. He'll, he really will step in it in a second, but, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's that sort of, and I explained this to Katie when we did our episode, um, the lavender scare, which kind of talks about the mm. other side of this, which I'll mention in a moment. But I said, you know, Katie, anything, un-American was basically oh, yeah. if you didn't look like the white leave it to beaver family yeah you know if you were if you were gay if you were of color if you were 
um, you know, if you had, well, again, socialist, if you had any sort of an artist, if you had any sort of other ideas other than, yep. you know, a very strong 110% mm. capitalism, I mean, you know, and so, you know, what do you do when you're really kind of caught between that rock and a hard place? And so I think that's also what makes him very unlikable for me is because mm. something that's going on concurrently with this is that lavender scare. And it's far less yeah. known in comparison to the mm. red scare. Um, and like I said, I talked to about it on a recent episode and it was targeting, um, it targeted those who were gay or lesbian in the government. Yeah. And McCarthy then takes this route of, well, since it's illegal to be homosexual, if Soviet spies get evidence of a government worker who's gay or lesbian, mm-hmm. that person could be coerced, blackmailed, you know, can give up government secrets if they have security clearance. And therefore, they need to go too. And yes, I, Derek, you have that up saying like perverts. That was actually something we talk about is like that uh, sexual perversion, sexual deviance. And oh, you know, there it's it's homophobia, really. Basically, yeah. I don't get it's an excuse scary. for homophobia. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I've been like someone sitting there waiting. Uh, you know, I've been waiting for this opportunity for so long to hate you. Mm-hmm. And now I've got it. So yep. yeah, that's what it is. Because I mentioned to Katie as well, too, I said, well, all right, so if you're going to say, you know, someone's gay and has security clearance and they, you know, someone photographs them with their partner and they're like, oh, they're not just roommates. (laughs) 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 They're not just really good friends. They're, you know, and we can blackmail this guy. I'm like, well, wait a second. What about the guy who's having an affair with his secretary or gets falls into the Soviet honey trap, you know, the um can he not we don't care there? about that. He's plowing Russian women. We don't <laughs> mind that at all. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, you know, where, where's that line there? Yeah. Um, you know, anyway, but, and so the lavender scare, I now would argue having kind of researched both sides of this. I think that's really what kept the red scare going mm. because no communists were found that, you know, who did they did find. Yeah gay and lesbians you know people well i should say just queer individuals Hmm. you know across the board if there was anything again that was un-american or was different about you lots of air quotes here but you know and if they were to find you know anybody that they can go oh okay well we can oust you and if we keep finding people it's just like when they got the names you know if they kept getting names or they kept finding people that they could say oh well your security risk, you know, it just gave them reason to keep going. And so hundreds, Mm. hundreds and hundreds of gay government workers were fired. Lives were ruined. Yeah. Lives were taken. Um, Some people committed suicide after they, after they were outed in such a horrible, uh, humiliating, very public way. Mm. And, and that's, what's really terrible to me. And so that's why, again, I don't, Personally, just to interject my opinion, that's why I have a hard time with Joseph McCarthy Mm. and the hundreds, hundreds of lives that were affected by this man and those around him who spurred him on. Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn. Yes. I'm, you know, who was, who he himself was gay. And, um, you know, it's, it's like. It's, it's maddening, but you know, it, it's, and that's what makes me mad is like, and why I think this guy sucks because for what there is no evidence, you know, it's truly just witch hunt. Stuff. Yeah. 
it was it's just to, and uh, to create fear and, and snake power. And, yeah, you know, if people are scared, and you're the one that knows how to fix it. Yeah, sure, easy to stay making a paycheck. Also, like the weird thing is, it was an open secret in the government and pretty much in all of Washington that J. Edgar Hoover was gay, and yet somehow yeah. he avoided any sanction or prosecution or or not that i'm saying he deserved it i mean hoover was a prick but like you know he somehow avoided it because he also had power and he was useful so therefore um you're about to get savaged by walls apparently uh, <laughs> yeah the nixon werewolf but yeah like, i i think that it, it wasn't just gay people it was like gay people they could get basically mm -hmm. who had no power which was the majority of them at the time because they were living secret lives. But Hoover was untouchable. So they were like, oh, no, we're not going to mess with that because he could ruin our lives as well. So, yeah, crazy. And so just to wrap things up for us all, uh, Joe McCarthy finally steps in it. 1954, he goes after the U.S. Army. <laughs> he goes after everybody. But when he gets to the army, everyone's like, all right, now, all right, calm down. <laughs> yeah. We've, yeah. You leave our army alone. So television exists at this mm -hmm. time, of course, right? And McCarthy, you know, maybe ego-driven probably, he thinks this is going to be great. I'm going to televise these hearings against the army. And people are going to be like, oh, man, how cool is this guy for shining a light on how bad everything is? It's Again, all to this point. <laughs> right? Considering his track record, he's not really, it's not like he's, Got a lot to show for it. And so he has a 36-day hearing against the army, and he looks bad. He yeah. attacks, he insults, he doesn't give evidence. And then when he himself is questioned, he sidesteps the questions, he won't answer them. He does one of those like, oh, you know, and then I'll just throw it back at you. He's like, <laughs> well, wait, you never really answered my question, that kind of thing. And uh it really became clear to the nation because now the world can see, or, you know, the nation can see this. It's televised. Everyone's watching it. And they're like, oh, <laughs> this guy's lost his marbles. He is overstepping his authority. His common sense is out the window. Uh, he's just looking bananas up there, just yelling at everybody. And it also, <laughs> there's a famous line from the hearing where special counsel for the army, Joseph Nye Welsh, just looks at McCarthy and goes, have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you no sense of decency? Because hmm. just everyone's just so fed up. And after the years of him accusing and not getting anywhere, but still having a certain level of support from the people, everyone's like, ooh, like, yeah. we, don't, we don't want to touch this anymore. And it all catches up with him. People realize he's just a mean old windbag. Yeah. <laughs> And he gets censured from the Senate. Um, falls from power. The end. He's disgraced. Yeah. And it's pretty much, a, like you said, it's a very quick ending. And unfortunately, he has a problem. Ha, sorry, had a problem with alcohol abuse. Yeah. And after his fall from power, it got, that got worse. And he ended up passing away only three years later from That's cirrhosis right. of the liver, having mm. liver disease. And um, yeah. That was, 
That's that's what called caused it all right there. He was just drunk the entire time. It was one big blackout <laughs> yeah. the entire fifties. I don't remember what was those th- those years were a blur. I don't remember. Oh, Maybe can you I imagine that he fingers. would be like such a teddy bear and just be like a really cool person, but he was just <laughs> yeah. drunk, and then that was why he was so mean. You know, I would hate that be the case. But oh, yeah. you know, all, all the people around him, even those that supported supported him, even Roy, Roy Cohn, which I don't know mm-hmm. why I'm having such a hard time saying his name, but. Even I rub he, off on people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My inability to say things. <laughs> and even he who was like his mentor and support, or not mentor, but like they're good buds. And and even he, everyone would talk about how, like, they're like, yeah, no, he's kind of a jerk. He's mean. He's not nice. He's, you know, he's venomous with his words and he just really, but, but he really knows how to stir the pot. He really knows how to say the right thing to get people to support him. He really knows how to make somebody look bad by mm-hmm. pulling on fears and insecurities that a lot of people have, whether it be that individual that he's talking to or, again, the American public and injecting that into um, his rhetoric. But, yeah, that was that's Joseph McCarthy, you know, and wow. um, almost like he's yeah. the inventor of uh, mudslinging in yeah the the modern age yeah i I was gonna say uh if we're talking mudslinging uh, i i really need to introduce you guys to um a former um archbishop of canterbury who was (laughs) murdered who was like he was uh, a working class lad so whenever he got uh insulted by uh people in power because there was like almost a civil war and he was killed in, in the cathedral he would call people whoremongers and stuff and this is the archbishop of canterbury he's like you bunch of whoremongers and it's like holy shit this guy's hardcore um so yeah like mccarthy was very good at like um garnering and centralizing fear and then spreading it very easy. he understood the american people's insecurities and he played on that like a stradivarius it was mm-hmm. scary how good he was at pulling people's strings for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of behavior makes me nervous. Pulling mm-hmm. on strings and yeah. flinging mud and making people like scared and not know what's up. Yeah, mm-hmm. you keep people scared, you can sell them anything. Um also I just wanted to point out you talk about the downfall of McCarthy. Another interesting figure in in this whole story is a news anchor called Edward R. Moreau who him and his CBS news crew had basically had enough of McCarthy. They were like, oh, fuck it, this guy is dangerous. We need to get rid of him. So they ran a series of news programs about him. Um, the whole sequence of, of their broadcast is covered in a film written and directed by George Clooney called mm. uh, Good Night and Good Luck. It's a really good film. Um, David Strahern is Edward Armourow. There's a bunch of people in it. Robert Downey Jr. is in it. Patricia Clarkson, Jeff Daniels, Frank Langella. Um, yeah, loads and loads of uh, famous actors. It's a great film. It's one of um, Clooney's better films. He's done some shit, but like it, it's it, it very accurately captures the sense in the country at the time of just how scared people in institutions were of this man. I mean, mm-hmm. we're not just talking about yes, they were working in the TV industry, in the news industry. They're journalists, therefore they're probably on the front line of people he doesn't like. But many many people working in multiple different industries were scared of having this finger pointed at them because it was the end of your life it wasn't necessarily a death death sentence but you were persona non grata from mainstream society forever so 
One hundred percent. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was that that trickling down because yes, his targets were government, mm -hmm. but that fear is everywhere, everywhere, right? You know, so you're looking sideways at your neighbor, you're looking sideways at your, you know, your teachers, your your coworkers. You're like, are they a communist? Everyone's listening to what you say and and really analyzing it in a way of like, oh, that sounds mm -hmm. a little bit commie sympathizer. You know, mm -hmm. I don't like that. You know, and and it was. Yeah, it was that sort of um, ostracizing of, yeah. or being ostracized, I'd say, from your friends, your family, your community. It was scary for everybody, even if you yeah. weren't a direct, um, you know, target of that. You still that, were. That's the thing that sucks too. Is it's not even you don't even have to be against it. You just have to be like, don't. yeah, whatever. And mm -hmm. oh, well, you're one of them then. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, it's it's one of those scary moments in history that um, we we often hope society will learn lessons from but we're learning very quickly that we do like to repeat patterns as as homo sapiens don't we mm. just love the pattern shit so we'll just like oh that was fun for a while wasn't it let's do that again mm. um so you do get this kind of constant scare and like you were saying the portrayal of uh communists as well that has been a mainstay of other um in 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 western society ever since so if there's a group of people you want everyone to be afraid of, you use those things that have existed since um, even things like uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of those were related to some of the Red Scare stuff. So it's all archetypes that have existed for thousands and thousands of years. And yet, for some reason, the vast majority of people fall for it every time. Mm -hmm. Really scary shit. It is. <laughs> it, yeah. it is. It really is. And, and you know, history... I, I've heard this recently from uh, another history podcast host. Her name is Don Brody, and uh, she has a podcast called History I'd Like to Fuck. And she, <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> she's amazing. She, she said, um, and, and, and I'm trying to just remember this offhand, so it's not going to be as cool as, as what she does it. But she says, you know, she's annoyed with the phrase, um, you know, those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. Mm. It's like, I hate that phrase. It's my pet peeve. And she says, <sighs> And, and essentially the the reasoning is that she says you know it history gives us like a playbook if you will of how to keep people under the thumb how oh, yeah. how to um how to do all these terrible things that we're supposed to learn from and not do and you know she's like you know you, you create fear you make the people hungry you scare them they'll do whatever you want them to do and and that is repeated over and over and over and over and over. Yep. And so, um, you know, it's just, and when I'm doing these sort of stories like this, I'm like, there it is. There's another yeah. one. There's another example. Check, check. So it's happening right yeah. now in the UK. We're currently going through a, uh, I mean, obviously we had the issue with grain in the Ukraine where it wasn't getting released mm -hmm. and there were, you know, food prices have shot up and now energy prices in the UK sh are shooting up to the point where people are calling for a windfall tax on, on government on, on private company uh profits because people like shell and british gas are making billions of pounds profit and people are going to have to pay three thousand nine hundred pounds worth of fuel bills in a year so um yeah i think we do, we do see that playbook getting brought out so often it's it's really scary how often it happens in terms of scoring joseph mccarthy this is a really relatively easy one mm -hmm. because he is one of the 
ultimately the question you have you have to ask with McCarthy was what was his end game? He was never going to make any money off this, right? They were going to, oh, we're going to employ Joseph McCarthy. You remember the guy who scared everyone? Yeah, he's on our staff now <laughs> after his political career comes to an end. No one's going to hire this guy as a consultant, right? He's not going to be on half a million a year or whatever. And nobody's going to go to an after-dinner speech from a guy who was like, communist. Like, who wants to hear that guy talk? So, like, his only end game I can see is that he whipped up enough um, furore and, like, anger and fear and stuff was maybe for a presidential run potentially but like what else could he have done so ultimately all of this stuff that he was doing had no end game and all he did was just ruin lives for essentially no reason other than an overblown sense of um patriotism and and you know kind of importance i should say this though and i think i may have mentioned this to derek before i know someone who worked with Theresa may who, uh, when she was prime minister, and she she used to come to the West Midlands to do speeches for the Conservative Party when they were in power, and the normally you do that in the centre of the West Midlands, which is Birmingham, biggest city. But look, to get from the train station to where you need to make your speech, it's like there's a whole like networking issue and police and all that, and it would have been very expensive and difficult. Whereas if you come to Wolverhampton and go to the place where my my friend works. It's like it, you can walk down the steps of the train station and you're there and you're in this huge place that holds thousands and thousands of people and has state-of-the-art television stuff. And anyway, he met Theresa May multiple times. He worked with her. He kind of helped her with the setup and stuff and arranging things. And he'd spoken to her and all this. And I, I asked him, what's she like? Because you always want to know what the leaders of these people are like. I was like, does she believe that shit? Because she's a Tory, right? Does she believe any of that? He's like, she believes every fucking word she says mm. her advisors were all educated in eton they are all privately educated rich children of other conservatives they have absolutely no idea what the rest of the world is like for other people she believes it and she doesn't care what your opinion is she is on her track and she is not changing and that scared me because at that point because you have this thing where you're like maybe they don't believe it right maybe they're just doing it for power or to make money or whatever it is but actually some of these scary people they believe every word they say even though they're clearly say it wrong. enough you say it enough you start believing your own bullshit and yeah. that that's usually how i end up with most of my idiots they believe oh, yeah. their own bullshit so much um yeah. so uh, my score for joseph mccarthy and i i want an opinion from derek on this because because we're kind of both jointly scoring i was going to go 90 with joseph mccarthy a nice high 90 derek that's what do you think that's where I was at. I was I was bouncing back between ninety and ninety one. Yeah. yeah. I, I think oh. yeah. inadvertently justification. Yeah. He didn't kill really. anyone, like I mean himself directly, mm -hmm. but like everything else, <laughs> the 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 kind of creation that he brought into this world, definitely a ninety for sure. Yep. I, wow. I'm down with that one. Yeah. And now I'm gonna play with moving people around. <laughs> <laughs> So, Center stage. thank you, <laughs> so, Laurel. Thank you so much for that. It, it is really interesting That's to revisit because in the UK, obviously, we were outside of. We did have a, a, a very small version of that because whenever you guys have like a big trend, or a big movement, or a big political thing, we always tend to be like, "Oh, we'll try that as well." Just not quite as good. Like, "Oh, you've you've elected an, an idiot." Yeah, we'll do that too. I mean, slightly, <laughs> slightly younger and less weird looking. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, sort of. We're that person that copies you because it's it looks good at the time, but by the time we've done it, it's like everyone's yeah. Busy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, it's interesting. A lot of the stuff you talked about with Joseph McCarthy is going to be very closely related mm. to my guy today, particularly when it comes to the manipulation of the masses, but also um, the kind of the idea of the American way of life being central to their point. I would like to talk to you and introduce you to E. Bruce Harrison, the man behind the lies. Um, I just also want to uh, thank if the, anyone listens to this, big <laughs> thanks to Rigged, who uh, produced this article that I've cribbed like 95% of this from. So thank you, guys. Uh, it's a very in-depth article about E. Bruce Harrison, who is probably the most important person you have never heard of in your life. And I'll explain why now. Um, e. Bruce was another behind-the-scenes guru, all awe shucks and southern charm, but a master manipulator of the public and the government. Harrison's career began as a journalist and was active in a society of professional journalists, formerly known as Sigma Delta Chi? Chai? Chai? Like Chai tea? Like that, that yes. Okay. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he was. He also co-chaired uh, the group's Project Watchdog, which was aimed at press freedom, which is going to be an interesting pivot coming up. And uh, was also in uh, hosting its uh, First Amendment Center in Washington. So he was very core central journalist freedom speech and freedom of press and things. So he's, you know, immediately thinking, okay, this guy's not only had a good education, clearly, but he's off to an interesting start in terms of like freedom and stuff right right he's you getting know? out there and and it seems like doing good things right yeah um so he also spent time working for a member of congress and campaigning for the election of john f kennedy in 1960 hey. oh. so hey. again yeah similar time frame we're talking here on the opposite side of the uh the floor to Joseph McCarthy, probably very different, diametrically opposed, I would imagine, with his points of view at this point. Um, he was surrounded by, in that time, surrounded by forward-thinking Democrats, champions of modern freedom, and random people that wanted to fuck JFK. So, yeah. 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 I mean, I think that was a big, big, big yeah. group there. That a lot of people wanted that man. Um, <laughs> for his favorite visitors to the Alabama senator's office were the corporate lobbyists, his boss had no time for these kinds of people because he thought they're scum, and he was probably right. But Bruce liked to cut their jib and the idea that business was a better way to solve problems than policy would ever be. So, as a result of various Mad Men-style late-night boo sessions, um, the chemical lobbyists wooed him to work for them, making him the very first, and I was unaware of this job title until I researched this, environmental information officer ever. That sounds huh. like, that yeah, legit. questions about that. Environmental information officer. That What does that conjure up in your minds? Just going to ask uh, you. Uh, it, it, big brother? It, 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 I don't know. I'm trying to think. Joel? Information officer... Seems like that's where you would go and get the information that you're looking for, and you can trust the sources without you know yeah. checking it too much. Right? What, what about you, Laurel? <laughs> what does that make you think? Yeah, it sounds that sounds about the right for me as well too. Mm. I just someone that's probably getting the information from you know whoever is leading 
yeah, environmental science of whatever that meant at the time. And then being like, here's this information. He's like, I yeah. am the gatekeeper of this information. Here exactly. I am. Ask me. Yeah. You're, uh, the idea is with that kind of title, you're, you're going to someone who is a PR person, but who is also skilled in disseminating complex information and giving it to people in understandable chunks that they can then use to educate other people and maybe use for whatever means they need it for. That's not what he did. Um, and he almost immediately found himself uh, facing an enormous challenge when he was tasked with beating back the first wave of the environmental movement and that damn book, Silent Spring. So I'm going to talk to you now briefly about what Silent Spring is. It is an environmental science book written by Rachel Carson, published in, on the 27th of September, 1952. The book documented the environmental harm caused by the indiscriminate use of pesticides. Carson accused the chemical industry of spreading disinformation and public officials of accepting the industry's marketing claims unquestioningly. In the late 1950s, Carson began to work on environmental conservation, not conservatism, um, especially... <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. Fair, uh, absolutely fair. <laughs> especially environmental problems that she believed were caused by uh, synthetic pesticides. The result of her research was Silent Spring, which brought uh, environmental concerns to the American public. It made what was at that point very much a fringe uh, idea and movement. It made it completely mainstream because people were like, oh my God, my children are going to die from this. Mm. And they did. Um, so... The book was met with uh, fierce opposition by the chemical companies, but it swayed public opinion and led a reversal in U.S. pesticide policy and a nationwide ban on DDT for agricultural use um, and an environmental movement that led to the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. So this one book killed DDT and brought about the uh, kind of the, the chrysalis, the kind of the central idea of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which is an incredibly important branch of the U.S. government. Um, There's a really important job. Yeah, they do. I, I don't know how well they're doing it these days, but, you know, it's neither here nor there. Here they don't have money. No, they keep getting money taken away from them, and you might be about to see why. In 2006, uh, Silent Spring was named one of the 25 greatest science books of all time by the editors of Discover magazine. Now that we've got that out of the way, you understand why uh, he was brought in. Um, he lost this battle, uh, Mr. I've forgotten the bastard's name, Mr. Harrison, Mr. E. Bruce Harrison. Um, uh, he lost the battle, but he learned some lessons. Uh, so he's learning lessons from history. So I kind of like him for that, but not what he's about to do with it. Uh, he then went back to work for a mining company that sent him off to Indonesia to set up a deal to create the world's largest copper mine. Uh, when he came back to Washington, D.C. in 1972, it was clear that the industry had truly been caught flat-footed by the environmental movement and was struggling to regain its standing. Most modern... Uh, sorry, yeah, there it is. Sorry, I've lost my place. Most modern environmental legislation uh, was passed between 1965 and 1972, and the EPA was established in 1970 to enforce it. All of that happened while Harrison was out of the country and before he really got a hold of all of these lobbyists and people that had power. Um, 
So in uh, the chemical, uh, sorry, uh, established in 1970, Harrison's old pals in the chemical industry and the American Petroleum Institute were losing in this new world. And he was in a perfect position to help them uh, win again. He knew business. He knew government. He knew lobbying and PR. And now he even had foreign relations under his belt. So he was oh. the perfect go-to guy hmm. for some cloak and dagger shit that we're about to see the dark arts of pr <laughs> um harrison's big idea was to combine various industries unions and government entities together into groups that could be more uh, that could get more done and couldn't be traced to any one company so he's he's doing the the shell corporation thing that people are now still doing to this day in panama and the fucking you know random like places where the Panama they... papers there yeah yeah the Panama papers he's he's basically inventing that this shady bastard um, <laughs> he, he created the National Environmental Development Association or NIDA a vaguely pro environmental sounding uh, name that was actually a coalition of chemical mining oil and gas and AG companies along with industry friendly politicians and unions really anyone who had a bone to pick with the new environment uh, with new environmental regulations or who just really liked shooting hippies just <laughs> oh, just really got to shoot me a beatnik today <laughs> i'm just going to i'm going to join these guys they look like fun um, I, I imagine there was some people that were tricked into it by it sounding vaguely I'll, environmental protectiveness absolutely and and that that was actually the case. However, the illusion didn't last long because you go into one of these meetings and you're like, "Oh my god, this is a vampire nest! What the hell am I doing? My neck's open. What am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Where's my garlic?" Um, Harrison made uh, Nida the first clients of his new PR agency, Harrison and Associates, which he co-founded with his new wife, Patricia. Patricia was very much an equal partner in the firm and very, uh, very involved in the Nida account. This word account is, yeah, that's kind of gross. Uh, years later, she would work as the co-chair of the Republican National Committee and as a staffer in George W. Bush's State Department. Boo! Uh, yeah, sorry, oh. personal feelings coming in there. <laughs> uh, so and I'll just read you uh, her official state bio reads. As a founding partner of E. Bruce Harrison Company, among the company, the country's top 10 owner-managed public affair firms prior to its sale in 1996, she created and directed the programs in the public interest comprising diverse stakeholder groups, including the National Environmental Development Association, a partnership of labor, agricultural and industry working for better environmental solutions together. The last part of that bio is utter bullshit. Because you can't just write Planet Killer. Oh, yeah, I bet that wouldn't be a good sell. No, no. So, um, thoughts so far on E. Bruce Harrison? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's you're starting. So he's already, so he's lost right at this point, but he's starting to get shit together, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Go on, go on, Derek. I'm playing with graphics over here to to, <laughs> to try and like do some stuff, and then I forgot to bring it up. Yeah. There we oh, go. There so this go. is actually a very good visual representation of what Harrison's the father of. Hmm. Um, yeah, disinformation is his weapon, and he wields it like like a fucking sword, like King Arthur and you know 
the lady in the lake sword. I can't remember the name of the fucking thing now. Uh, Excalibur. Thank you, ah. Laurel. I don't know why I held it in my hands like this. I was like, oh, it's Excalibur. That's Excalibur. Little dagger. Uh, <laughs> I was um, over here thinking of the lady in the lake, and I was all M. Night Shyamalan. In oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. God, mm-hmm. that film. Holy Dumb shit. movie. Yeah. My <laughs> God. Um, M. Night Shyamalan is Jesus. That's what I learned from that film. Um, they would. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, the um, the groups would monitor all proposed environmental policies, brief uh, NIDA members and craft messaging around it and make sure that the press had the industry the industry viewpoint on things. Uh, they also lobbied members of Congress. There you go. Another perfect, wonderful illustration. I think that's the Lincoln Monument, though. Uh, yeah, it is, but, you know, that'll do. Um, if you it's see a government it, thing. It's very American-looking. It's, it's looking, a government yeah. thing. If you start to see his head move, you know, be concerned. There's something inside. Um, <laughs> so... They also lobbied members of Congress and even testified um, before committees about the economic harm of new environmental regulation and what it would do. Most importantly, NIDA helped to push the idea of balance and necessary trade-offs between protecting health and the environment on one hand and economic growth on the other. They originated the idea of, yeah, that's fine. We've got to save the planet, but a bit of money, a bit, maybe a bit, bit of money. Give me a bit of money. Yeah. yeah. Um, Americans Ooh. who had been getting into the whole clean air, clean water thing were suddenly rationing gas. Oh, I've, I've skipped a whole chunk here. I'm sorry. At the same time, the global oil crisis had Americans looking for new forms of domestic energy, which not only spurred research into solar power, but also into drilling in previously protected areas. So uh, while they were getting into the whole clean air, clean water thing, the suddenly rationing of gas and people getting very worried about losing the American way of life. Now, there's that word again mm-hmm. that we had before. I have to ask you, this is obviously at the 70, in the 70s at this point. Um, I'm not American. I've been numerous times, but I don't really know. that The American dream is very much a nebulous idea, but the American way of life, I feel, is something that can be more clearly defined. What exactly do you guys believe is the american way of life i wish i knew (laughs) is that the uh life liberty and the pursuit of happiness which could still be very nebulous as well um i feel like that kind of gets i could be totally wrong this is just my knee-jerk reaction to this it kind of gets held up as like this is america like this is yeah this is what we are we are you know constitution and freedom and eagles and and um you know Give me your Americana. tired, give me your poor. Yeah, you know, this is yeah. this is our, you know, this is where you could start a new life where you can have opportunities and you can have, you know, um, oh, freedoms, you know, that yeah. uh, civil liberties. Um, yeah. The, iron, the ironic <laughs> thing is what you're describing there is, is kind of what I kind of had in mind. And one of the things, whenever you bring up like Americana, American imagery and stuff, one of the first things I think of, ironically, when we're on this conversation, is the American like wilderness and countryside and environment. Mm-hmm. I think of like all your amazing rolling plains and mountains and, and forests and countryside and rivers and all of that shit. The fact that you're now fighting off wolves while you record this podcast, Laurel. Yeah. Um, like... <laughs> In my cabin bunker, I'm like, oh, the werewolves yeah. are out, you know? I got a living the American way of life. monster coming up from the lake. It's it's <laughs> it's the wilderness out here, folks. <laughs> yeah, America. Like, it's so weird that, like, that 
image of America and certainly in the reels that I see on the news is so closely tied to Americana and what I imagine the American way of life is. And yet we're talking about a guy um, who who basically is doing everything he can to destroy the environment and like people are now drilling on land that they shouldn't be and shit like oh, that. So what so. if that's a nat- national park? <laughs> yeah so so what if we've got to move these people to some other part of the country that's, that's fine as long as we can drill for oil and shit so I, i'm glad we've got that cleared up because my my idea of the american way of life was very ill-defined but it, it seems that it really depends on who you are as to what your interpretation of of what that means i think I so the galactic emperor of mankind yeah, yeah, me too. No, that sounds like too much responsibility. It's also you probably have to do a bit of work, right? I don't want. I want to work a thirty-hour week. I don't want to have to work yeah. overtime. You know, I want to sit down and watch my Netflix stuff. Um, so I feel attacked. Uh, yeah, there you go. So, I don't want to be an emperor. Too much work. Um, that's the only problem. But um, so meanwhile, research scientists, um, at oil companies, and universities. We're stacking up evidence about a new, far deadlier sort of environmental impact for the industry to worry about. The greenhouse effect. Um, thanks to our old friend, um, Thomas Midgley Jr. <laughs> yep. The planet killer. Thank you, you reckless, irresponsible bastard. I'll just um, put some lead in it. Yeah, just lead in everything. And then let me set up this contraption to help me get out of bed slash choke me while I masturbate. Um, that won't <laughs> come back to bite me in the ass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's that's my theory on how he died. It wasn't because the contraption was helping him get out of bed. He'd invented a, he invented <laughs> autoerotic <laughs> asphyxiation. Yeah, so that's that's my theory. Um, in the 1980s, the oil crisis became a glut, and oil companies were facing the dual threat of cratering prices and looming environmental regulations. But Harrison and his compa- uh, compatriots, that's an interesting word to use, had done a fantastic job by this point of convincing Americans that regulation was bad for the economy. No regulation. No, don't want that. No, we can't make money that way. And and that the American way of life needed to be protected at all costs, even though no one really knows what that actually means, apparently, especially with those commie bastards gaining power, gaining power in Russia and China and possibly having one or two people in the State Department who were actually probably just probably just gay. Maybe that's probably what that was. Um, in 1989, as the world was growing increasingly concerned about global warming and regulations seemed more and more likely, Harrison brought automakers, manufacturers, utilities, oil, gas, and coal mining companies together to figure out a strategy. He called it the Global Climate Coalition, which sounds like something the Justice League would fight. Um, sorry. <laughs> and the first thing he did was get its members into the international climate meetings of scientists and politicians that were just starting. GCC members and Harrison himself were involved in shaping the UN framework on climate change. This man had a hand in the UN's shaping of global economic and uh, environmental policy. That's scary. And he was the type of person that believed that balance between making money and saving the planet was where we really needed to be focusing. Yeah. Yes. And this, again, of course, this is the person you want leading the world's response to environmental change. A guy who was a journalist and who works for a PR agency. That's who you want leading the charge. Marketing. Yes. Marketing totally knows about climate change. 
Don Draper sounds like a smart guy. Let's give it to him. He'll know what to do. Um, they were, yeah, they were weighing in on every on uh, every um, report from the global climate scientists, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, particularly the report in 1992. They were at the first international climate conference, the Rio Earth Summit, pushing world leaders to embrace the idea that there was plenty of time to act on climate change. And that we shouldn't risk economic hardship, i.e. billionaires need gold things um, to do it. And that, in in fact, business could be trusted to do this voluntarily without any kind of like gentle heart hand on the tiller from mummy and daddy. It's like, mm. get your shit together, kid. No, my room gets to stay untidy for a few more decades. It's fine. I'll... Nothing bad's going to happen. I feel no, like his playbook is still in use. Basically, yes. The yeah. playbook was very clearly defined from the outset. The group, um, who were very, very fond of spreading this money around, spent about $1 million a year from 1989 to 1997 uh, in the lead-up to the monumental Kyoto Summit, which actually was a big win for environmentalists, but could have been even bigger had this asshole not been around. Um, on advertising, they spent that money a million dollars a year so that people were like, mm, I don't know, quite like oil. Um, and 13 million a year in 1997 alone as the climate summit drew near. That's $25 million in today's money on advertising in 1997. I feel like they could have been spent to maybe do something like, else. Yeah, fuck me, man. Get You could make a new national park for that kind of money. If you have to spend that much advertising on your ideas, I feel like maybe they not they might not be the greatest of ideas. Yeah, I think. Yeah, like man, we're throwing so much money at this. Have we tried just doing the opposite? That might be cheaper. Dude. We're supposed to be all about the money. Why are we blowing so much money on this shit? Right. Mm. Um, the group also spent. $63 million uh, in campaign contributions during the 1990s. The equivalent of $120 million today. That's just on campaign contributions, mostly to Republican candidates. I still don't understand that I spend millions of dollars to get a job that pays 100000 a year. That doesn't <laughs> seem sketchy at all. No, not at all. Um, I have a big problem with campaign contributions. We, we talked about this last week with Paul Flowers, who randomly donated £50,000 to uh, Ed Balls. Love that guy's name. Um, so that he could have a nice new new office. There was also a thing recently with Boris Johnson, another nail in his seemingly enormous coffin that could just take every nail possible, where someone donated £100,000 to build him a treehouse at Checkers so that um, his kid could play in the treehouse. And like the the police said, no, you can't build a treehouse because someone will try and shoot at you while you're in the treehouse. Can we not do that, please? Oh, uh, and the guy was like, no, I didn't get any special favors. I just gave him a hundred thousand pounds for a treehouse. That's all. Nothing that's dodgy a, in that. It's a hell of a treehouse, man. Yeah. That's that's the tree mansion. You know, <laughs> like you're you're yeah. de dehousing hundreds of squirrels just so <laughs> that you can play in a tree. Like that's, that's too much. Um, so. <laughs> Anyway, by this point, Harrison had sold his firm to PR giant Ruder Finn because his wife was elected to the co-chair of the Republican National Committee and helped steer George W. Bush to victory. Boo! Um, <laughs> Harrison stayed on, though, with Ruder Finn to advise on various clients, including his creation of the GCC, 
Bush won his election, of course, and within weeks, his uh, his fun his um uh, Mrs. Harrison had got in his ear, and he had pulled the United States out of the Kyoto Agreement uh, using Harrison's favorite argument that acting on climate change was unnecessarily harmful to the U.S. economy. The idiot son of an asshole. Man, <sighs> I, I don't know. I this this kind of bums me out that his job and his idea was in a way knowingly coming mm -hmm. up with ways to just put yeah. off the right thing for just a little bit longer so I can yeah. make a little more money. Or this man, some people yeah. I know can make a little more money. Exactly. The, and I can get some. paid handsomely for working yeah. for them. It's like he's not even doing it for himself. He's doing it for like a portion of the paycheck. You know, it's like, how fucking desperate are you, mate? Mm. But uh, also like, he knows the science. This man has seen the science. He knows what's coming. He doesn't want the public to know. He doesn't want anyone else to know. He wants to sow the seeds of doubt, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Patricia Harrison was renewed for her election help with a plum assignment in the very same Bush State Department. Bruce went on to create the whole, um, sorry, the whole sustainable business ecosystem, earning him the nickname the Godfather of Greenwashing, which he hated because it's true, <laughs> and he doesn't like the truth. Um, he eventually became a professor at Georgetown and Patricia was hired as the president of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, uh, the public-private partnership that oversees government funding of public media in the United States. Some critics voiced concern at the time that her time as RNC co-chair would make her too biased for the position. They're right. Nobody listened. Uh, yeah, no one knew. Don't. Yeah, exactly. This is Patricia's lasting legacy now. No one knew that she had also helped create the myth of clean coal or that she and her husband were, as one sociologist puts it, the intellectual parents of climate denial. Patricia Harrison remains in that position today. E. Bruce Harrison died in January 2021. He was eulogized by national papers as a pioneer in environmental communications. However, and this is the part that made my jaw hit the floor. His greatest, greatest achievement was covered by the BBC recently. Uh, remember the GCC that I've mentioned multiple times? Well, on an early autumn day in 1992, E. Bruce Harrison stood in a room full of business leaders and delivered a pitch like no other. At stake was a contract worth around about half a million dollars a year, about £850,000, because the BBC thinks people don't know can't do exchange rates in this I country, can't. apparently. <laughs> I well, can't do exchange rates between... Yeah, never mind. It's a little hard. You are at 8%. <laughs> it's fine. It worked out. Uh, 850000 in today's money. So not a big amount of money, but like enough for a pitch. The, pr the prospective client, the GCC, who he was heavily involved with, which represented the oil, coal, auto, workers, uh, utility, steel, and rail industries, was looking for a communication partner to change the narrative of climate change change the narrative of climate change so instead of facts and figures and stuff truth yeah he, they wanted to change change the narrative his first suggestion was to change the name from global warming to climate change because warming makes people scared climate change Nah, this changes all the time. It could be raining in five minutes. That's climate change. Mm -hmm. So Don Ream and Terry Yossi, 
Two of Harrison's team present on the day are sharing their stories for the first time. This only came out last week. Everybody wanted to get the cl- the Global Climate Coalition account. This sounds like an episode of Mad Men, says <laughs> Reem. And there I was, smack in the middle of it. Yeah, boozing it up with Don Draper. Terry <laughs> Yossi, who'd recently been recruited for the from the American Petroleum Institute, became a senior advisor at the firm, remembers that Harrison began the pitch by reminding his audience that he was instrumental in fighting the auto reforms, and he had, uh, he had done so in part by reframing the issue. The same tactic would now help beat climate regulation that would persuade people that the scientific facts weren't settled and that alongside the environment, policymakers needed to consider how action on climate change would, in the GCC's view, negatively affect American jobs. They took our jobs, trade <laughs> and prices. The strategy would be implemented through an extensive media campaign. Everything from placing quotes and pitching opinion pieces, so-called op-eds, to direct contacts with journalists because he still had shitloads of them from his time working for JFK and that campaign. A lot of reporters were assigned to write stories, Reem says, and they were struggling with the complexity of the issue. So I would write backgrounders so reporters could read them and get up to speed. He wrote the articles for them. Uncertainty ran through the full gamut of the GCC's publications, a creative array of letters, glossy brochures, and monthly newsletters. Reem and the team, that's so funny, were prolific (laughs) within a year. Harrison's firm claimed to have secured more than 500 specific mentions in the media. In August 1993, Harrison took stock of progress in another meeting with the GCC. The rising awareness of the scientific uncertainty has caused some in Congress to pause on advocating new initiatives, declared an updated internal strategy pitch shared with the BBC by Terry Yoshi last week. Activists sounding the alarm over global warming have become publicly have uh, publicly conceded that they have lost grounds in the communications arena over the last year. Now Harrison counseled they needed to expand their external voices making their case. Scientists, economists, academics, and other noted experts carry great credibility with the media and general public than industry representatives. While most climate scientists agreed that human-caused climate change was a real issue that would require action, a small group argued that there was no cause for alarm. Plenty of time. Uh, The plan was to pay these skeptics to give speeches or write op-eds, about $1,500 per article, and to arrange media tours so they could appear on local TV and radio stations. My role was to identify the voices that were in the mainstream and to give those voices a stage, Reem says to the BBC. There was a lot that we didn't know at the time, and part of my role was to highlight that we didn't know. You do know. You've read the information, and you've written the stories for people. Yeah. That's, mm. I, oh, man. There's more. Okay. He says the media, <laughs> there's more. He says the media was hungry for these perspectives. Journalists were actually actively looking for the contrarians. It was really feeding an appetite that was already there. Journalists don't like the truth if it's only coming from one source. And I understand that because a lot of journalists want double confirmation on everything right. until they yeah. go to press. But sometimes you trust the tens of thousands of scientists that are saying the same thing. Um, oh my God, the wolf's angry. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> it's made it inside. It's inside. Barricade yourself, Laurel. <laughs> I, f- um, I feel like you can't trust scientists yeah. that are doing it because they're getting okay. notoriety and pay. Like yeah. you should be doing it for the science and the data and like, and and I feel like he might be one of the people that created the let's look at uh, scientists used to think the earth was flat and they really didn't believe um, what's his face. Mm. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. Actually scientists even back in the Renaissance period really didn't think the earth was flat. The majority of people had climbed up a mountain and seen the curvature of the earth. Like, Oh, okay. It's not flat. Oh shit. My own eyes. That works. I've done it. I've climbed to the top of Snowden. I've seen Ireland. I'm like, holy shit, there's a bit of a curve there. That's amazing. Wow, we live on an orb. Okay. Um, many of these skeptics and deniers have rejected the idea that the funding from the GCC and other industrial groups had an impact on their views. That's because they're, they're you know, it wasn't me. Yuppie Nuremberg excuse. Um, <laughs> but the scientists and environmentalists tasked with repudi- repudiating them argue the reality of climate change encountering a well-organized and effective campaign that they found hard to match basically there's a lot of bullshit the global climate coalition is seeding doubt everywhere fogging the air and environmentalists really don't know what's hitting them environmental campaigner joe Passa Cantrando remembers nice. what the geniuses of the PR firms, and this is the thing that really hit me. This is from the guy who worked with E. Bruce Harrison. What the geniuses of the PR firms who work for these big fossil fuel companies know is that the truth has nothing to do with who wins the argument. If you say something enough times, people will begin to believe it. Echoing a quote from the head of propaganda for the Nazi regime, Joseph Goebbels, who said, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. E. Bruce Harrison, ladies and gentlemen, the man who created climate denial and lied constantly. Ooh. And there's yeah. this picture. Look at the people um, watching online. Uh, there's an es- estimate here that he pushed back... Um, uh, the kind of environmental reforms that we're now kind of desperately looking for by 25 years. So, and God knows how many people have died, lost their homes, been injured, had their lives ruined as a result of climate change. I, I feel all like for, what happens all, yeah, is you, all for you half listen, a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> but what, a year, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. no. Uh, yeah, yeah, half a million dollars a year. But like, Really, you know. It's still, I mean, there's no, no Go uh... horses, mate. What? Go bet <laughs> on the horses. Like you'll win <laughs> half a million dollars eventually. Christ, sorry, that was just a random thing. Sorry, I just, carry on. I don't know. I feel, I feel like if we would listen, uh, I don't know. <laughs> the The truth seems like it should be easier to sell, and maybe that's why it doesn't have as much money behind it. Yeah, you have a PR guy who's very good with information. And yeah. unfortunately, he's on the wrong side. And yeah, you basically take a message. Um, and if you don't frame it in such a way that everyone can understand it, then then very much people very quickly turn off. And then the people that do trumpet that message seem like they're preaching. And then it gets turned off even more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I want your guys' opinion on E. Bruce um, Harrison here, not, not George. I think George would have probably 
punched him or something. Um, what do you think of the mastermind behind global climate denial? Ooh, well, yeah. I'm glad to know about him. I mean, mm. I, I have not heard about him before. And so hearing the story, it's like, oh, <laughs> all right. Uh, you know, it, it, he strikes me as one of those, uh, was it, is it Thomas Midgley Jr.? Yes. Is that his name? Yeah. I see a lot of parallels here of just like, eh, you know, like that sort of, yeah. eh, it's not, I know, but, me now. Or, yeah, yeah. I know, but, or it's not affecting me now, or mm. you know, I can make this little extra bit of money, which again, for what, you know, but yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's so depressing when you find, because mm -hmm. we all knew, right? We all knew that this climate denial and flat earth shit and like all of this stuff, like we all knew it was false. We all knew the scientists were right. We've seen it with our own eyes. We've experienced it firsthand. There's always, but even though it's because it's such an effective message, there's always that part of you like, oh, maybe. But now we know this article came out from the BBC like five days ago. And it wow. was all because he wanted a contract worth half a million dollars a year that he was like, well, we're not going to call it global warming. We're going to call it climate change. And we're also going to basically pay people to lie. Yeah. And it changed. It The climate did change. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. And it's, oh man, it's dude, it's, it's super messed up yeah. that um, it's basically his 500,000 a year came from all of mm. the industries of the Koch brothers and yes. a whole bunch of the things that, you know how when I said I don't want to be the emperor because I, I would rather do nothing, and I think mm. that's how we got here is because it's cheaper for businesses yeah. to do nothing and ignore exactly. the problem mm -hmm. than to do the right thing, spend a little bit of money on research and development and different ways to be better. <laughs> yeah, uh, try, I I feel we stopped innovating. We did because of and this. I also feel like a part of this is like down to human nature as well because as humans, you know, it's like well, I can do that later. You know, it's fine. I'll do, I'll do that, you know. And some people, I mean, I know some people who are very studious and very prompt with their actions, but I'm one of those people as well who falls into the trap of, yeah, I'll do it later. You leave it till the last minute and stuff. And mm -hmm. yeah, like, unfortunately, that approach seems to have gone all the way to the top of our thinking about the world. And now we're facing the consequences, or at least the beginning of them. And a lot of that is down to this guy who... Again, like Joseph McCarthy, understood human nature and human beliefs. Like they said, the will to be a contrarian and the will to disagree with this was there. They just needed a little push. So yeah. it's it's so interesting that you have two people in E. Bruce Harrison and Thomas uh, Thomas uh, Joseph McCarthy, who whose main skill and pretty much only skill really is their ability to read and manipulate people. Um, and as a result, they have between them sowed mass political uncertainty and uh, ruining of lives and potential destruction of the planet. Just two people. Yeah, if you can get people to doubt what's real, yep. you can uh, really get... You can rule the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I, I would like a score for E. Bruce Harrison. I, also, what the hell do you think E stands for? I could never find this out. Oh, I want to go Enos or something <laughs> like that. I you think do? it was Emmett. Was it Emmett? Oh, oh he doesn't deserve oh. Emmett. Let me no, see. He can't, he can't be Emmett. Emmett. Enos. Call him Enos? Did you Harrison? say Emmett? 
Yeah. Enus. Yeah, I quite like Enus. Yeah. Well, cool. <laughs> yep. I think that's his name. Emmett uh, Bruce Harrison Jr. Oh, yes. Fuck oh. that guy. Yeah. He took a cool name. Yeah. Uh, not him. Yeah. I, I found so, this here. Oh, what have you I, found? I found this here. Maybe. Jeez. Is it not loading now? Oh, I got it. Here we go. Whoop. There it is. Oh, that's there his. we go. Yeah, there's... That's... Man, he... Man, the evil ones live long, don't they? He look, yeah. He looks a lot like uh, Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Fuck, yes. He does, yes. So much. <laughs> and has the same motivation. Yeah. Since the dawn yeah. of time, man, has yeah. longed to destroy the sun. Um, <laughs> Good episode. So, yeah, it was a great episode. So, um, score for E. Bruce Harrison. What do you guys think? Oh, ladies first. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> what did uh, our buddy? Well, or not a not buddy. Uh, what did the uh, Midgley get? Do you guys know? Often it would be like a ninety-three or something like that. So or four? we uh, we kind of um, retroactively raised his level because we had like he was quite early on in the show, mm -hmm. and then we had people like like fucking uh, New Jack and uh, <laughs> and and. Uh, what's his name? Um, a bunch of cult leaders and yeah. stuff David like that. Koresh yeah. and David Koresh yeah. and and um, Rick James and all these people <laughs> who got like really high scores because mm -hmm. they were a bit mad. But then I looked back at it and I was like, Thomas Midgley Jr. killed millions of people, really. So I think I retro retrospectively raised it to either a 97 or a 98. I can't remember okay. exactly. Just really get a scoreboard for this. And shit. to be fair, I just make up my scores like it's the <laughs> whose line is it anyway score points. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> That's good to know. Because whenever you guys do your ratings at the end mm -hmm. of each story, I always sit and go, oh, I don't know, maybe an 87 yeah, or 6. Because yeah. I just, again, kind of make up a number and go, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, that sounds uh, right. Good to know that you guys. Uh, <laughs> Off the cuff. You know, because in my head, in my mind, I've been thinking, you know, one to two points less than, probably two points since you guys moved him up, um, than Thomas Midgley. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm thinking like, like, you know. Yeah, he's up here. I was like, eh, I'm gonna put him down a few pegs. Sure, so, I don't know, maybe like a 94, five. Yeah. You know, is that reasonable? Yeah, that sounds good. Derek, what do you think? I was gonna go with a 94 because at this yeah. point, he may be responsible for the fact that my kids' grandchildren won't be able to sustain life mm -hmm. as we know it here oh, because yeah. of denying what's happening, and we're so yeah. close to going over the edge when. We could have just done little things, but this guy yeah. put the money and the words into saying, nah, let's just hang tight. <laughs> yeah, and we'll so, be yeah, right. 94. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much the Shaun of the Dead thing. We'll just go to the Winchester and everything will blow over. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like I, I kind of, I, first of all, I will take that because it's a very high score. But also, I agree with the idea that he's not quite as high as Thomas Midgley because Thomas Midgley was a scientist. He knew exactly what he was doing and he physically, like, he enacted it. Mm -hmm. Like, this guy is a PR guy. So he's like, I'll smudge the books for you a little bit. I'll, like, put the message out there and make it all messy. We all know what's going on, but don't worry. I'll handle it. Give me half a million dollars. Whereas Thomas Mitchell was like, I am going to be an industrialist and make a shitload of money and uh, people can die. Fuck it. Poison you know, so yeah. it's like, it's not quite as bad, but still mm -hmm. pretty fucking bad. I feel like. Midgley yeah. might have been one of the dudes that was like, hey, E, I need you to yeah. do something for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, 
can we have a conversation between you and me? We can just destroy the solar system. Holy shit. Uh, we can pollute dozens of planets. Um, yeah, 95 for um, E. Bruce, uh, Enos Bruce Harrison. And uh, he's, he's going, I'm going with Enos. Fuck him. Fuck him. He can't Enos. have it. Yeah, Enos Bruce Harrison. And um, Joseph McCarthy, the, the father of crazy ranting politicians everywhere Ooh. um it was a hell of an episode i mean i i, I knew last week like we were going to be covering i mean i didn't initially but when we got on to david koresh i was like oh big name you know like famous particularly yeah. for our generation everyone remembers that crazy guy who was in the fire but like mccarthy huge name and then a guy who is possibly going to become well known for destroying the planet. There's some pretty heavy hitters right there. This might be the highest scoring episode we've ever had. Oh, so, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> thank, thank you so much, Laurel. Yeah, honestly, you've added so much to this conversation because, like, the perspective oh. you've added on McCarthy. So I didn't get a chance to learn about him in school and a lot of stuff that you mentioned I didn't know about. But yeah, it was really fascinating. How did you find? Um, can Rockefeller say? There are chemicals in the water that are turning the frogs gay. There are chemicals in the water that are turning the frogs gay. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Very nice. uh, but, thank you. Uh, but uh, yeah, so how did you find researching uh, McCarthy? Because obviously we talk about, you know, we, we enjoy researching and stuff. How did you find that? It... Uh... It was a little bit, I, I because I covered the lavender scare separately, sure. I was like, oh, this should be a pretty easy to put together sort of thing because mm -hmm. I kind of know enough about the guy who is the central mm. character in both those stories. Um, but when I focused more on him, sorry, my soup pots, uh, letting my, <laughs> sliding my computer into my lap. Uh, <laughs> uh, when I When I went into actually researching him it was um a little bit more rabbit hole -y than i sure. than i kind of realized it would be there's yeah. again a lot of nuance a lot of the cogs in the machine because you would go through the story and you're like "Ooh, well this little thing over here influenced that a little bit and yeah. that made him think this and that made his crony do that you know things <sighs> like that where i was like oh i've got to pull back a little bit on this but um it, as much as I don't know. Maybe this is just me. As much as I like wanted to throttle him, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I he's it's sad, you know. Mm. It's it's sad for every, mostly for all yeah. the people that were affected first and foremost. Oh, yeah. But it's just like you, you little sad man. In yeah. some time, you know, where I was just like, you feel that you to be self important, mm. or to you know to kind of yeah to feel feel important and to kind of. I don't know, prove yourself and your place in the world. You mm. need to belittle others. You need to be a yeah. bully. You need to ruin lives and like, and sad for you. And, you know, I, mm. and obviously I'm, I'm guessing again, this is just my opinion, but with his alcoholism yeah. that, you know, that's, that's a whole nother layer to add into it as yeah. well. You know, of, of somebody trying to, I don't know, self-medicate or, yeah. you know, whatever it Cope might be. with the situation, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, okay, there are plenty, <laughs> and you guys talk about it as well too, there are plenty of people who have, you know, hurt and mental illness and whatever it might be, but they don't 
go on to hurt others. And, yeah. um, right. you know, so that's where that. Yeah. Went. So there is, there is an element of, yeah, th there is an element of sadness to Joseph McCarthy's story as, as grotesque as some of his actions were that, mm -hmm. you know, like you say, if, if somebody is struggling with addiction or, or mental health issues or whatever it might be, self-medicating can seem easy. And, 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 if the wrong people are around the wrong substances, it can give them a real rush, a sense of power. And, you know, it can lead them to act in ways that if they're in the wrong profession can actually get them quite a lot of influence and success. Right. Yeah, like if they're a, a person that's self-medicating with alcohol and they have to be a, a lawyer that has access to powerful politicians, they might yeah. wreak some havoc. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's 100%. really scary. Yeah. And, and obviously the age he was in, the environment he was in that would have been a huge thing like oh you can go out drinking with the boys nobody's gonna mm -hmm. throw up any barriers about that you can get blasted go yeah. out buddy it's part of the culture mm -hmm. but he took that and it became his driving you know he died of liver uh was it liver issues cirrhosis yeah, cirrhosis, cirrhosis and then they'll issues. say like liver failure it's like it seemed like there's yeah. a few things that kind of happened at once for him but it's all mm. you know liver yeah. disease issue yeah. it's really sad um i had a lot of fun uh it was again a lot of this guy came about because i read the bbc article about ebrews harrison and it was just that moment where i was like oh here it is it's like the finding the missing link even though <laughs> there is no missing link um so like it's just like finding that like finally we get it i finally i understand this is the chrysalis the start of the climate denial and the fact that i know people who mm -hmm. like oh i don't know if it's man-made maybe it's volcanoes like there's people out there i know that do not necessarily believe in climate change and i just bite my tongue and a lot of that is thanks to this guy in fact almost yeah. all of it is down to this guy so i had a lot of fun researching this and and when i found out you were going to be on laurel i couldn't wait to tell you this stuff oh. because like we're kind of we're all history junkies and we kind of love like learning new stuff and like, i love yeah. imparting that and helping people discover so Thank you so much for being on and and talking us through. Can you uh, yeah, once again? Pleasure. Can you remind us uh, where your your podcast can be found and your social media can be found? Yeah, so we're hightailing through history, and that's on Apple Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, uh, Amazon Music, Spotify, all those all those yeah. places. So you just type in hightailing through history, and you'll find us in there. And uh, yeah, in terms of social media, Instagram's our main place. Uh, we're hightailing sorry at hightailing history also we are on tiktok uh recently and you know that's fun i yes. and you're on <laughs> twitter as well that. that's right <laughs> recently got on there i'm like oh this is what this is all about yeah. but yeah it's 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 great but yeah uh instagram's kind of our main place but tiktok hightailing history and um facebook and twitter um at hightailing history yeah Awesome. Thank you so much. And um, if you guys um, want to follow us, uh, History's Greatest Idiots, we are on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can follow us at Greatest Idiots on Twitter and at History's Greatest Idiots on Instagram. We also have a Patreon page. If you would like to become our first ever Patreon, go to patreon.com slash History's Greatest Idiots and you can get a bunch of swag. I guess that's a word I should not use. Um <laughs> We're not I'm using that word. I'm 41. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, please go there. Support us. Support the podcast. Laurel, thank you so much for being on. Absolute uh, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 
it was again and, and we look forward to bringing you on again in the future we'll just we'll give you a bit of a break let you come out with another wonderful idiot we'll i've got some right yeah i've got some in my back pocket for you guys oh, yeah, to be honest great. we, we um, like yeah we like a backlog of idiots we like <laughs> <laughs> we like lining them up like oh you're next oh i can't wait um yeah and Derek, thank you so much. Like the the graphics we've had uh, and the import and stuff has been really, really good. I know it's been a different role for you. Thank you so much for doing that. I just wait until I figure out how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you did great. You're always down oh, yeah. on yourself. Man. Oh, well, I, I don't know what I'm doing, so it's just kind of guessing. But once you're I doing know a very I'm good doing? job. Oh, so you don't I know what, do I. Just know what we're doing. We're, we're adults <laughs> cosplaying as grownups. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for, for listening to us and watching us live. And um, we will see you again in a couple of weeks' time. So until then, take care now. Bye. <laughs>